Hey, do you have your Bible? Get your Bible out with me. We're going to get into the Word today. So excited to preach this message to you. We've been in a series now for several weeks called Upside Down Kingdom. You know, our world uh, gets separated pretty easily into two categories, it seems, winners and losers. You ever felt like you were just pushed and labeled into one of those categories? Uh, I don't know, like if you could imagine, just hypothetical, like if everybody had to like vote for one of two options, and then like after that was over, they said half of you are losers and half of you are winners. I know that's a stretch to imagine, but <laughs> how many have felt that way? Half of America right now is celebrating and calling themselves winners, and, and half of America is being called losers, and it's so easy to just kind of qualify ourselves like that. And if this was a message series that I was preaching about how to get ahead or how to gain or how to win friends and influence people, I'd probably give you some W's to live by, some motivational W's, because everybody wants one in the win column. But this is the upside down kingdom that we're talking about. And so for the last several weeks, I've been giving you some L's. I've been giving you some things that the world might look at as a loss, but they are keys and character traits of the citizens of God's kingdom. If you've missed this series, or maybe for those that have been here, let me just refresh with you. The first L was that the lowest becomes the highest. In other words, the way to get into this kingdom is through the doorway of humility. Jesus said in the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, it's those that are spiritually bankrupt, those that recognize that when they come to God, they come as a pauper. You have nothing to merit your own salvation. You are poor in spirit. And he said in that verse, Matthew 5, 3, those that are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The second L that I gave you is Lose your life to find it. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 16. He said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. I don't think it's been said better than the words that were found in the journal of missionary and martyr Jim Elliot when he wrote these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So Jesus said, if you want to you gain, you want to be a part of this kingdom, you've got to be willing to lose your life, take up your cross and follow me. The third L was this, we lead by serving. Now, I know that doesn't look like the world that we live in. Worldly leaders do the very opposite. Worldly leaders use their own power to their advantage, and then they call themselves public servants. The word in the scripture is benefactors. But Jesus said that's what they do in this world. And then in Mark chapter 10, verse 43, he said this, not so with you. It's not the way the upside-down kingdom works. Not so with you. Instead, he said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. And then Jesus modeled that. He actually did it by washing the disciples' feet. While the rest of the world 
acknowledges whatever power they have, great or small, and they clamor for titles. Jesus recognized all power and authority is in my hands, and he reached for the towel. Because in the upside-down kingdom, we lead by serving. And then last week, everybody felt inspired, and everybody felt uplifted, because I gave you this L. We love our enemies. Yeah. What a paradox. We love our enemies, but in the kingdom of God, we understand this, that love does not stop at the border of mutual affection. Jesus said, even the pagans do that. I mean, even even the the tax collectors and the sinners greet people that that greet them. It's It's not hard to love the people that you love, but in the kingdom of God, our love has to go beyond the border of mutual affection into the realm of self-sacrificing service, selfless love. And it's a good thing that it does go that far because if love doesn't extend to our enemies, how many of you know we wouldn't be saved? The Bible says in Romans 5.10 that you and I were God's enemies when Christ died for us. And he exemplified what it really looks like to love your enemies when he loved you. Yes, you. I know that makes you feel good, but yes, you. He loves us, and he calls us to that same kind of love. So today, I want to give you another L in this upside-down kingdom. Write this down if you're a note-taker. The least is the greatest. In the upside-down kingdom, the least is the greatest. And today, I want to give you three reasons why that is. Number one, simply this. They trust the Father. They trust the Father. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus interrupts an embarrassing moment for the disciples. We talked about it already once in this series, but I want to go back to the scene against. Luke, Luke chapter 9, verse 46, it says this, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, don't you wish he couldn't do that sometimes? Oh, you're all saints in this service. I, I've been there. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child, and he had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Just picture this scene. I mean, they're literally arguing about who's the best, who's Jesus' favorite. They're waiting for Jesus to establish his kingdom, and they want to know when he establishes the kingdom, who sits on his right hand, who sits on his left, who gets the signet ring, who gets to be, uh, you know, the secretary of defense, who gets to be in charge of of, of healthcare, what's the job title that I'm going to get? And while they're all reaching for titles, Jesus pulls this child out, and he says, the least in the kingdom is the greatest. So that begs the question, what does a child have? That, that we don't have sometimes? What does a child possess that Jesus would say, you got to be like this one if you want to be great in the kingdom? I mean, think about it. Children don't have authority. They don't have strength of their own. They don't have wealth or resources that are their own. In fact, they're very dependent. So what is it that they have? 
And I'm going to tell you a couple of things that children have that make them the example for us to follow in the kingdom. Number one, something that probably all of us wish we still had, but you probably lost a long time ago. Innocence. Some of you are thinking about your health right there or your memory. I don't know. You're like, what have I lost? Or your hair, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Innocence. Think about it. Children are innocent. Go with me to Mark chapter 10, Mark's gospel chapter 10, because this is another moment where Jesus looks to children to teach us a lesson about the kingdom. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13, Jesus says, it says that people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Can, can I just pause and say, you want to know what angers God? Spiritual or religious people that hinder children from coming to God. Aren't you thankful that you're a part of a church that does anything and everything we can to allow children to come to God. I know all of them aren't in the room. A lot of them are serving, but some that served at 8.30 and some that will serve at 11 are in this room. Could we just show some appreciation for our kids' ministry workers? Amen. Last night, uh, Pastor Chris, they, they had a bonfire uh, over at the Heaston's house, and man, thank you for hosting that, Billy Joe. Man, she had dozens, I don't know, 40 students maybe. I had a ton of students over there hanging out. And you know, religious people would say, man, those teenagers, they just break stuff, man. They mess things up. But Jesus is indignant when people don't let children come to him. Here's what it says happened next. He said to them, let the little children Come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I was reading this verse this week, and I had a memory come back to my mind. It was about 16 years ago. Our oldest daughter, Morgan, was uh, about six months, seven months old, couldn't walk yet, but we had one of those little baby walkers, you know, that you set them down in. It's got wheels on it and a tray, and you set them in there, and she could just like scoot all over the, the linoleum kitchen floor. You know, she'd slide around and bang into stuff, and, and she did something. It was so funny. She knew where we kept her snacks. She used to eat these things called biter biscuits. I don't know if any of y'all have ever tried a biter biscuit, but it's like a really, it's like a biscotti for children but you don't have any coffee or milk to dunk it in. So it, it kind of tastes, if you ask me, it kind of tastes like a dog biscuit, you know? <laughs> they just suck on them until they get soft enough to smush on their face and in their hair. And I hated the things, but she loved them. And so we kept them in the cabinet, in the kitchen, and she knew where they were. So little Morgan, she couldn't walk yet, but she would push over in that little walker, and then she would open the cabinet. And she would get in the cabinet, she would grab the box of biter biscuits, she would pull them out, and she would have like five of them on her little tray, and she would eat them. But the funny thing about it is, while she was doing it, the whole time she was doing it, here's what we could hear in the kitchen. She's going, no, no, 
No, no. No, no. Because she knew that's what mom said when she was trying to get in the cabinet. She was not supposed to open. But she was innocent. She didn't know what no, no meant quite yet. But she knew that's what mom said when she tried to do that. So she told on herself every time. And you know, like any good parent, what we did, we sat behind the door hiding and filming it and laughing, you know, we loved it. And and that innocence that, that she, she wasn't thinking about the price of those biter biscuits. She wasn't thinking about uh, a job or paying taxes or working overtime or clipping coupons. All she knew was that my father has provided something for me. And it's mine, and I can access it in this moment. And can I just say for us, a lot of times it's skepticism, it's cynicism because of things that have gone wrong or things that haven't worked out the way we thought it should. And those things can cause us to miss the kingdom. We can miss it because people rob you of your innocence. People steal your joy. Circumstances like waves crash against the rocks of your reality. And and if we're not careful, we can project those attitudes and thoughts on the nature of God. What we have to do, if we're going to be the greatest in the kingdom, we have to be innocent like a child. We have to just know that my father put the goodies on the bottom shelf where I can reach them. And he... He might be unseen. He might be behind a door, but he smiles with pleasure when you find your reward. God is for you, and the innocence of a child is an example for us to follow, to say, God, I trust your goodness. I don't have to know all the details. I don't have to understand everything that's happened in my life. I just know that you're going before before me, and you're preparing a place for me. Here's another reason that children are a prime example, because children have faith. They have faith. And so what Jesus was saying in Mark 10 here is that you don't have to have it all figured out. You need to know that your father has it all figured out. In fact, confidence in the goodness of God is a prerequisite for kingdom citizenship. Because the Bible says in Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So you you cannot ever satisfy God outside of coming to the place that you trust God. What you do will never impress him. Your confidence in what he has done is what wins his joy. It's what wins his smile and his favor on your life. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's been well said that faith is not belief in spite of evidence. That's superstition. We all know people that are superstitious, right? They, they believe something in spite of evidence. And that's silliness to just to think that, you know, well, maybe this, oh, I saw a black cat. Oh, I walked under a ladder. Oh, I broke a mirror. And we just buy into superstitions. Or we think something's going to, you know, work out in our favor because of things that have happened. But that's not what faith is. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of consequence. It's saying, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I do have evidence. And don't we see that so beautifully in the life of a child? You know, when they're barely old enough to even jump, what does dad do? Stand them up on the counter, right, and say, come on, jump, jump. And what does that child do? They jump. 
They just go for it. Why? Because they have evidence. They're not jumping in spite of evidence. The evidence is my dad loves me. The evidence is my dad is for me. What they don't know is dad wasn't a very good receiver in high school, (laughs) and you might fall on your face. But they trust the evidence of his love in spite of the consequence. There's no fear. And the Bible says of God's love, perfect love cast out all fear. And so when you have absolute confidence and faith in God's love for you, you can trust him in spite of the consequences. And so Jesus goes on a little farther there in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 16. He says, it says this, and he took the child in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Can we just get that picture in our minds, maybe, maybe you have that picture from an old coffee table family Bible. You know, it's, it's Jesus there with a red sash and all these kids in his arms. And this is that moment. It says, Jesus took the children in his arms and he blessed them. And here's what he's saying. And here's what he's showing us in that picture and in these words. Jesus is saying that in the upside down kingdom, those that look like the least, those that have the least authority, those that have the least least power, the least influence, they are actually the greatest. Why? Because they come to their father. And when you come to your father, you find blessing in his arms. So they come to their father. The second second reason that I want to give you today that the least is the greatest is simply this. They obey his commands. Last week, we looked at a a large portion of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, but I just want to go back there for a moment. You remember in that message, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I actually came to fulfill it. That's what Jesus said he came to do. Look with me at Matthew 5, verse 19. Therefore, he says, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands, because he came to fulfill the law. If you set aside the least of these commands and you teach others accordingly, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he really threw the gauntlet down in verse 20 when he said, but I tell you that unless Your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why did he say that? Because on the outside, the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they looked like the most religious. They looked like the greatest in the kingdom. But, and we talked about this last week, they weren't actually obeying the commands. They had replaced God's commands in exchange for their own oral traditions. They were living by their own standards, and so God's saying to them and to us, look, this is not about how spiritual you look. This is not about what people think about you or what your bio is on Instagram. Listen, the reality is this. If you don't obey the commands, if you don't actually live this thing out, you're not even in the kingdom. But if you, if you do obey the commands, and then he, he calls out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and says, then you're more religious than these people. Why? Because you obey the commands. I think about someone that was great in the kingdom, and my mind goes to John the Baptist, because Jesus said about John the Baptist, he was the forerunner of Jesus. He prepared the way for Jesus' ministry. He was the first cousin of Jesus, and Jesus said about him in Matthew eleven eleven, truly I tell you, among 
those born of women, there has not been, and by the way, that's all men <laughs> except Adam. So that's a big list. Among those born of women, not one has risen that is greater than John the Baptist. That's a high accolade. Yet, Jesus says, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John, John was the greatest of the old covenant prophets and the last. And the reason he was the greatest is because he had the most pronounced and explicit prophecy. He's the only one better than Isaiah, Jeremiah, Nahum, Habakkuk, better than all of them. He's the only one of the prophets that could prophesy the coming of the Lord. And then he actually stood on the banks of the Jordan and pointed at him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a whole lot more clear than any other prophet had ever made a statement before. And Jesus said, there's just nobody in the old covenant that can hold a candle to John the Baptist. But my new covenant, this kingdom that I'm inviting you into, the one that I've come to introduce, is so much more glorious, so much better than the old covenant that even the least person in the new covenant is better than the best person in the old covenant. That's what Jesus was saying. He said, if, you'll, if you're a part of this new kingdom, then you're greater than John. God spoke about how clear it is for us to understand the importance of obeying his commands. I mean, if God was going to speak right now, I mean, how many of you would, would, would want to hear God's voice? I, I, I could think of a list of things that I would love for God to say. Give me some clarity about some things. There's not a whole lot of places in the New Testament where God actually does speak audibly. Now, I know you probably have some friends that say God told me every day. <laughs> and, and, and maybe you've heard the audible voice of God. I never have. I've never heard God speak out loud. But if he did, I mean, if I heard his voice, there's a lot of things I'd want him to say. There's only a few places where he actually does speak out loud. And one of those is on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus is up there with just three of his disciples, and he brings them to that place. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 17, that while Jesus was speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, here's the voice of God, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. That's a word of affirmation. That was a stamp of approval from God to say, Jesus is my son. I love him. He hasn't died for anybody yet, but I love him. The same way he loves you, not because you did something for him, but because you're his son. He said, I love him. He's my son, and I'm pleased with him. But he only said one thing to the others that were there. He said, listen to him. Listen to him. If God's going to speak to us, you know what he's going to say? Listen to Jesus. Paul said it in Colossians. Jesus is the fullness of God in bodily form. You want to know what God's saying? Listen to Jesus. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. Listen to what he has to say. And so for a person that is the least in the kingdom, and they're going to be called the greatest, not only do they trust the Father, but they obey his voice. Let me give you the third thing that makes the least the greatest in the kingdom. It's simply this. They have the answer. They have the answer. I read a story of 
a company in South America years ago purchased a fine printing press from a U.S. manufacturer. After it had gotten shipped there and they put the whole thing together, they couldn't make it work. They put their, their finest experts on the job. They tried to make all the appropriate adjustments to remedy the problem, but it was to no avail. They couldn't get the machine to work, and so they, they sent a wire back to the manufacturer in the United States, and they requested that they send a representative immediately. Well, sensing the urgency of the message, the U.S. firm chose the person that designed the equipment. They sent him down there on a plane. And, and when he got there, the South American CEOs were skeptical. They, they saw this guy. They said, he's young. This guy, he can't have any professional experience. I mean, we got the smartest minds on this job. This young guy can't do this for us. And after they talked about it a little bit, they sent another wire back to the company in the U.S. And it simply said this, your man is too young Send a more experienced person. And after just a few minutes, a telegram came back over the wire, and it said, he made the machine. He can fix it. <laughs> How many of you know that it doesn't matter what people think about you if you have the answer? If you have the answer they're looking for, it doesn't really matter what people think of you. It reminds me of another story in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 5. And we read the biography of a man in just the first verse. His name was Naaman. And I love this story. It says in 2 Kings chapter 5 verse 1, now Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. Now, think about this biography. This is a great man. He's a commander of an army. He's highly regarded, highly decorated. He's been used of God to bring victories to his people. It goes on to say he is a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. You have to acknowledge that last phrase. It kind of puts the rest in context, doesn't it? I mean, all these great things he's got going for him, but he had leprosy. And there's a lot of people that are like that today. If you look at the awards that they've won, you look at the accolades they receive, you look at the opinion that other people have about them, we, we could say a lot of great things, but the reality is if you go beneath the surface, if you look at their soul, you see a sickness. There's a leprosy of the soul. The Bible says in Romans 3 and 23 that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Romans tells us all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And so there is a sin sickness that lives on the inside of each and every person. And we can try as we may to cover it up and to continue to build our resume in our image, but the reality is you cannot cure it. That's not the reason that I turn to this story. Naaman's not the character I want you to see. There's another person in the story that seems insignificant. 
There's another person in this story that nobody knows her name. Nobody knows the awards she's received or the accolades or the accomplishments. But nobody cares if you have the answer. And so the Bible says in the next verse, verse 2, now bands of raiders from Aram, that's Naaman's army, had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. So listen, if Naaman were to make a list of all the people in his life that are important, I can promise you this little girl is not on the list. She's not on the list. She was one of dozens, if not hundreds, of children that were taken. When their, when their village was ransacked, when their homes were burned, she was taken to be a slave, and she was serving back at his house while he's on the front lines. She was serving his wife as a servant. But it doesn't matter what people think about you if you have the answer to their problem. This is how the least can quickly become the greatest. Look at verse 3. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. This little girl had the answer to the greatest problem in Naaman's life. Isn't it sad, church, how easily we disqualify ourselves from being used by God because we look at all of the outward things? We look at somebody else who's older than we are. We look at somebody else who's younger than we are. We look at somebody who has more experience, uh, that maybe has some more letters behind their name, somebody that seems a little more intelligent than us, somebody that has more resources. On and on and on and on we go. And what do we do? We look at all the outward things, just like you would look at Naaman and say, man, that's, that's a, a man of regality. That's a man of honor. He's a commander. And we look at all the things that are lacking in our lives, and yet the reality is we have the answer to the greatest needs in our society. If only my master would go and see the prophet in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Could you imagine if my house was on fire and my children were inside? And I called 911, and I couldn't get back in the house, and, and I'm, I'm in a panic, and I'm, I mean, I'm praying in tongues. I don't know what to do now. And all of a sudden, the truck shows up, and out jumps this little volunteer fire crew in all their uniforms. Do you think I'm going to stop if I see one of those kids is only 16, 17 years old? Do you think I'm going to stop and say, wait a minute, you're not old enough? No way. No way. I don't care. How old you are? I trust the fact that you're here to rescue my family. You have the answer to my need. I'm going to thank God for those men and women as they rush into my house. And that's the reality that we have. The least becomes the greatest when we recognize that though we are weak, we are strong in Christ. We have the answer to the sin sickness that plagues our world. This little girl, she had faith. She had faith, and I know it was faith because the reality is she had actually never seen God heal anyone in Israel of leprosy. Isn't that amazing? You know, we wait and we go, well, you know, if, if God does something, 
in my life, and then I find out somebody else has that need, well, I'll pray for them, and I'll trust God can do it for them. But how many of you know if we only trust God to do things that we've seen him do, we're not walking by faith, we're walking by memory? But this little girl, she trusted God to do something she had never seen before. But somewhere in her heart, in her innocence, in her obedience to the God of Israel, she just understood that that there is a man of God in my hometown, and through him, God does the impossible. And I know that she had never seen it done before because in Luke chapter 4, Jesus told a story about this girl. He mentioned this moment. He didn't say her by name. We don't know her name. But in Luke 4, 27, Jesus said this. It was an indictment on a lack of faith. He said, and there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet no one, not one of them, was cleansed. Only Naaman, the Syrian. So Jesus is saying, none of the people of God living in Israel had the faith to believe that God could cleanse a leper. But there's this little servant girl who's living as a slave in another town, And she had enough faith to believe God and to tell Naaman to go and find the prophet of God. And he did, and God healed him, even though she'd never seen Elisha heal anyone before. I want to invite the worship team to come, and we're going to take a moment now. We're going to respond to what I believe the Spirit of the Lord is saying to us. And I need you to hear this today, church. I need somebody to be reminded today of the power of the gospel. Paul said it like this in Romans 1.16. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So it's not not my pedigree. It's not my education. It's not my intellect. It's not my influence. It's the simple fact that I have the answer. In just a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Advent. And you remember when, when God put a little angel choir together to go and announce that Jesus was coming as the Messiah, he didn't go to the palace. He didn't send them to the religious elite. No, no, no. The gospel says there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. Suddenly an angel appeared to them. He said, behold, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And all of a sudden, the outcasts of society, the overlooked, the least, the shepherds, they became the first evangelists to go out and spread the good news that Christ had come, that the kingdom was now. How dare we forget, church? We have the answer. You have the answer for somebody in your workplace, somebody in your class. You have the answer for somebody that's going to gather around your table this holiday season. God said, in my kingdom, the least are the greatest because they trust the Father. I want to pray for you because I, I just sense that maybe there's someone here today that's been your struggle to trust the Father to trust that he is going before you 
He does hide his blessing on the low shelf where you can reach it. And though you don't see him, you have his smile. His countenance is upon you. If you've never trusted God today, let this be the moment. Can I tell you, you can't just say, Jesus, be my savior. Jesus, rescue me. Jesus, be that volunteer fireman that that comes and pulls me out. No, no, no. You have to say, Jesus, be my savior and my Lord. So it starts with trust, but it moves quickly to obedience. You say, God, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to obey your commands. So right where you sit, I want to ask you to bow your head with me. I want to pray for you. Maybe that's you today and you say, I need to give my life to Jesus. I need to trust him and obey. If that's you, would you just pray a simple prayer to the Lord right now? And just tell him that, God, I trust you. Lord, I recognize that I have to come into the kingdom through the doorway of humility. So God, I humble myself right now. I'm not leaning on my goodness or on the family I was born into or the school that I went to. None of that matters. I come poor in spirit. I come empty. I come needing a savior and I make you my Lord. Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my life.